Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a special edition of Poetry Superhighway Live. Today, we present to you a virtual publication party for the new Ain't Got No Press anthology, Ekphrastia Gone Wild, edited by me, Rick Luper, and including the work of Nobel Prize-winning poet Wislawa Sysimborska and 86 other poets from all over the world. Find out more about the anthology at poetrysuperhighway.com slash EGW. Ekphrastic poetry is poetry written after another work of art, and for our purposes, we have a wildly broad perception of what art is. Ekphrastia Gone Wild contains poems written after paintings, photographs, exhibits at museums, films, books, the entire bodies of work of particular artists, and in one case, there's a poem written after an entire evening's worth of input from many different mediums. The word ekphrastia, of course, I made up. It's my own derivation of the word ekphrastic, and I believe it suits the intended wild tone of the anthology. Today you'll hear poems from over 50 of the poets included in the book read by their authors. I encourage you, while listening, to go to the Ekphrastia Gone Wild website at poetrysuperhighway.com slash EGW, where, if you click on the contents slash artwork link in the submenu near the top of the page, you'll find the complete table of contents of the book. If you click on any of the poem titles that are blue, you'll be taken to a new page which displays an image of the artwork which inspired that poem. So you, in most cases, can actually look at the piece of art that inspired the poem while you listen to the author read it. We begin thousands of years ago with the first poem in the book, Obsession, from Southern California poet Consuelo Marshall. Hi, this is Consuelo Marshall, and the name of my poem is Obsession. Crane with deer antler, bronze, 450 BC, symbols of power, masterpieces from the Nanjing Museum. A friend gave me his book on invasion of the body snatchers, and as I read it, I realized he has lived in that movie since he was 10. For 50 years, he has rewound each scene in his head over and over a photo of a crane with an elongated neck and antlers sprouting from an unbird-like head has a similar effect on me. I want to go back 2,400 years to the Zen Kingdom in China, talk to the artist who created this mixture of deer and crane, 
Hear how they mix the symbols of luck and good fortune to form this unearthly creature. Really, I tell myself, my friend and I have not totally lost our minds. We just let our hearts lead us towards the imagined. Hi, my name is Fern G. Zedkar, and I'm thrilled to have two of my poems included in Ekphrastia Gone Wild. Uh, the first poem is entitled Venus de Milo, A Farewell to Arms, with apologies to Ernest Hemingway. Venus de Milo is a classic Greek statue of Aphrodite of Milos. Unfortunately, its arms and plinths were lost, and for those of you who don't know, a plinth is a base or a pedestal upon which a statue is perched, although I do have to admit that I have a more suggestive innuendo as to the definition of a plinth in my poem. So here is Venus de Milo, A Farewell to Arms. Goddess of love and beauty, saucy wench, flaunting her perky breasts, cloth drapery sliding down her thighs, exposing posterior cleavage befitting a plumber. She tilts to her right, unable to maintain balance, still stumbling in a state of stupor, following an ambrosia bender, culminating in the loss of her cherished plinth and both marble arms. She is now but a spectacle for Louvre tourists who gawk and point at the vestiges of her night of debauchery. If you'd like to learn more about me and my craft, please visit my website at www.ferngzcar.com. And if you happen to be from Canada, that would be www.ferngzcar.com. Many thanks for listening, and also many, many thanks to Rick for his wonderful work putting this fabulous anthology together. That was Fern GZ Carr from Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada. We'll hear another poem from her later. Up next, it's a poem from F.J. Bergman from Poinette, Wisconsin, which will be followed by a poem from Doris Luth Stengel from Brainerd, Minnesota, and then two poems from Long Beach's Gerald Bachman. Tubalini, circa 1400-1470 Jacopo, I am sorry that I couldn't afford the book and only leafed through it in the back of the store. Even at half price, $125 before sales tax. It costs more than I've ever spent on literature or art at one go. And initially, I was disappointed. Your human figures are stodgy and sullen, the drawing tentative, as if they didn't really hold your interest. And the horses are disproportionately swollen with odd shapes and elongated limbs. One could easily think that you had never seen a real one and were drawing them as fabulous beasts, approximating their appearance from familiar species. The cheetahs, however, are not bad. You drew them well in elegant and playful poses and gave them pride of place in several major works where the center of interest was really supposed to be the petty nobleman or boozing mercenary commander who had commissioned the piece. And I also admire your lions, 
rolling and biting and snoozing and fighting lifelike as if you had grown up in their company. Perhaps the rarity of big cats from distant Africa accounts for your careful attention to pelt and paw, your skill in sketching tendon and skeleton. But your dragons, dragons embattled, wild and on the wing, intimate with the structure of each spurred membrane, your sure hand materializes scale and vicious claw, vivid as the scarred memory of war. Dangerous and dazzling, terrible and true, meticulous studies of the contorted anatomy of desire rise and fire from smoky lines on old parchment. Tell me, when you drew them, where were you? My name is Doris Luth Stengel. I live in Minnesota and am a retired English teacher. The experience I had on a trip I took to Italy a number of years ago with a student group is what ends up in this poem. Last Supper. We arrive in Milano the day the exhibit reopens. Art experts had spent 21 years restoring the painting. Students smug full of knowledge. We wait in herded groups inside the thick cloister walls. 20th century technology electronically cleanses us of dust and pollutants. We walk, pure as apostles, into the huge refectory where monks once ate in silence, and some practical father superior ordered a door cut through the end wall providing more direct access to the kitchen, even though Christ's feet were cut off under the hanging tablecloth. Below those wounded feet we stand, stunned by the size of the scene, smitten by its color. Our guide points out the twelve grouped in trios around the one centered in solitude. Their gesturing hands seem to ask, Is it I, Lord? Each knows full well it could be he. Leonardo's presence lingers near. These walls hold echoes of Napoleon's soldiers, using them for target practice. Walls later leveled by Allied bombs. A sandbag miracle saved the frescoed holy diners. We back away, fixated on the depth of Da Vinci's room and the meal that lasts and lasts despite poor plaster and musket balls, despite betrayal. I can be reached at depoet at brainerd.net, D-P-O-E-T, at B-R-A-I-N-E-R-D dot net, all small letters. My chapbook, Small Town Lines, is available from Finishing Line Press. This is Gerald Lachlan, or Jerry Lachlan to friends, and uh, I've written ekphrastic poems since, since the very first ones I had in print 50 years ago. And I've written many in recent years, 
Uh, I don't attempt to recreate the fullness of the painting in my poems. I use them as starting points and they take me in many different directions. The two poems I'll read right now have as their starting points paintings by Franz Hals. And I want to thank Tomas uh, Tequila Review and Presa Press, where uh, each separately first appeared. Franz Hals, Boy with a Lute, circa 1625. The kid is just a little ugly in the way the Dutch can be when their crescent overbites push open their overly fleshy lips. This one's hair is uncombed, unlike the perfect coiffures of all Hal's portrait or portraits of a business man. His hat's askew as well. How effeminately, daintily, he tips his empty glass to summon a refill. Having probably spilled dregs on skeletal fingers and wrists. He's even careless of his instrument. His type won't win many wars against Spain, except perhaps as little drummer boys. Some folks pretend to admire this young, luscious, less commercial attitude towards life, but I know his type didn't last long in the taverns I used to frequent. He'd better save his tips if he hopes ever to get laid much or else become a whore himself and learn to shut his homely mug before he gets a Van Dyck stuck in it. Franz Hals, Portrait of a Woman, 1635. This woman is identified as 56 but looks 10 or 20 years older and to dress in such silks she must have had servants up the wazoo. She's also clutching a Bible, which means she's probably not getting laid. No wedding ring either. Whereas I would have gladly betted many comely 56-year-old swimmers at the YMCA pool, even when I was a lot closer to their age. Women really are taking great care, great care of their appearances these days, at least in California and probably Arizona, too. Well, they did have the consolations of religion back then, and a restorative afterlife, whereas most of the cults out here are kooky and suicidal. In place of the body and blood of Christ, they wash down arsenic with Kool-Aid, or freeze to death on a mountaintop, waiting in vain for the spaceship shuttle to rapture veal. This one could probably make a good nurse, though. Change one's sheets and rub one's back. Now that I look at her in that light, she's starting to seem a lot prettier. I bet they'd heard of the happy ending massage by then. They probably brought it back from Bangkok, like the Italians brought back spaghetti. I have a website at www.geraldlockman.org. I'm on Facebook, or you can contact me directly, which I prefer, at jerlachlan at 
gmail.com. That's G-E-R-L-O-C-K-L-I-N at gmail.com. is about a work that was painted in the Netherlands at a time when all of Europe had been at war, mostly religious war, for decades. The painting tells a standard religious story, but also says something about the ordinary lives of soldiers. The poem was written at a time when the United States was also at war, a war many see as having to do with religion. Guard Room with the Deliverance of St. Peter by David Tenier, about 1647. The point is that tomorrow they will be killed. Those soldiers gambling in the center foreground, while at the back, in a mist of pastels, to the right of the vanishing point, Peter is sprung from prison by the angel. You, viewer, are presumed to know this, to be a burgher of Antwerp in 1650 or so, and all too familiar with the concept of dying on account of religion. Herod, the off-stage villain, Finding Peter gone will interrogate the soldiers and order their execution. A verse of Acts will detonate like a bomb at the roadside. A hard center. Most artists play it down. Their soldiers sleep, look drunk, sprawl over stairs, low and off-center, out of the focal point. Arms flung across their faces, guilty. Footnote. Not to near. Notice what love he shows them. These soldiers dragged into someone else's struggle. By painting not the world of Anno Domini 44, but the world he knows how to paint. The dailiness of the northern Baroque. That coxcomb, front and center, with his curl, his fashionable broad sash, his pink hose points, his eyes locked on the dice, who will lose his money tonight and his life tomorrow. See with what care Tanir has rendered the folds of the soft, thin leather of his boots. In the patina of cuirasses and gorgeous, See what pains he takes with the light of the world. He has given his gifts entirely to them, knowing they too will give everything. Holy innocence of a different kind. Collateral damage of the blast of glory. Thanks for listening. To learn more about my work, please visit my website at MarianneCorbett.com. Hello, Alan Britt here. I'm happy to share my poem, Ode to Velasquez. 
when Rick Luther put out a call for poems on art for his Christia Gone Wild anthology, I thought that Ode to Velasquez might work for him, and I'm happy to say that it did. So here goes. Ode to Velasquez for Jose Rodero, inspired by Las Meninas, by Diego Velasquez. A painter posing before the beveled mirror of a bustling palace has the dark look of curious confidence. Nearby, women flow across the parquet palace floor. All the velvet alone that day must have been worth thousands, perhaps millions by today's standard. Velasquez brushes plum blossoms from the sultry lap of daily royal existence. He faces the mirror, then steps through 500 years to smell Cuban coffee brewing in Jose's kitchen. Thank you. Anyone desiring to contact me is welcome. I can be reached at alanbritt at comcast.net. Thank you. Enjoy Fresh the Air Gone Wild. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you, Alan. You're listening to a publication reading for Ekfrastia Gone Wild, Poems Inspired by Art. My name is Rick Lupert. I'm the editor of the book and your MC today. Find out more about Ekfrastia Gone Wild at the website poetrysuperhighway.com slash EGW. I was very fortunate to receive permission to reprint a poem by Wislawa Sisimborska in Ekfrastia Gone Wild. Uh, Sisimborska is a poet who won the Nobel Prize for Poetry. She passed away last year at the age of 88. Her poem, Vermeer, appears in Ekfrastia Gone Wild. And I want to thank the fine folks at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt Publishing for giving me permission to reprint the poem in the book. This poem is translated from the original Polish by Stanislaw Barnzak and Claire Kavanaugh. It's written after the painting The Milkmaid by Johannes Vermeer circa 1658, this is Wislawa Sisimborska's poem, Vermeer. So long as that woman from the Rijksmuseum in painted quiet and concentration keeps pouring milk day after day from the pitcher to the bowl, the world hasn't earned the world's end. That was Vermeer by Wislawa Sisimborska, a poem when I encountered it while reading through her book, Here, in the Moravian Bookstore in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, I knew that this was a poem that I had to find a way to include in the book. Thanks again to Houghton Mifflin for allowing that to happen. Up next, poems from Ron. Lavalette from Barton, Vermont, Letitia Minnick from Allentown, Pennsylvania, Cathabella Wilson from Pasadena, California, and closing off the next set, Jim Bennett from the United Kingdom. Hi, this is Ron Lavalette. I'm going to uh, read uh, my poem that was recently anthologized in Ekfrastia Gone Wild, edited by Rick Lupert. Um, the poem originally appeared in the inaugural issue of And Or in November 2010. Uh, and I guess if you'd like to uh, see more of my published work, um, you can uh, find them gathered 
at my blog, which is called Eggs Over Tokyo. Uh, the name of this poem is I've Got Your Grumpy Right Here, Pal. I guess you'd be pretty grumpy, too, if you shared a Cracker Box cottage with six other chirpy little bastards up every day at the crack of dawn with a merry hi-ho, hi-ho on their lips off to work after nothing but a meager bowl of gruel carrying pickaxes and a box of dynamite leaving behind such a rare beauty a fair-skinned brown-eyed princess to sweep up after them make up their beds wash out their nasty sheets no one keeping her company but a bunch of dopey birds what a waste and speaking of dopey let me just say a few words about a couple of the schmucks I work with. I busted a thumb about a month ago and found out Doc's not much of a real Doc, and I don't know what it is that keeps that nitwit sleepy, nodding all day, or happy, so friggin' happy, but sooner or later, there's going to be a cave-in, and frankly, I'd be glad for the time off. Maybe then I'd get to hang around the house, see if the princess comes across with a little TLC. Now that might improve my attitude some, eh? Go away now. You're bugging me. Hello, I'm Letitia Minnick, and this is my poem, A Memory of Madrid. I think I was 14 on that summer trip to Spain. Six students and a Spanish teacher taking in the Museo del Prado and the fine art of Castilian culture. Feeling well-equipped, having fingered through my father's art book, I passed each piece with appreciation and more than a vague recollection. It was only as I stopped to rest and raised my eyes to the oil mural transferred to canvas hanging directly across from me that I was transfixed, staring into Saturn's bulging eyes. It was if I had interrupted him mid-bite, his gaping mouth about to close on what remained of his son's left arm. The small dark photo on the clean white page of a coffee table tome did not prepare me for the gore of Saturn sinking his fingers into the back of the headless bloody corpse, a monstrosity almost five feet tall and nearly a yard across. One of Francisco Goya's black paintings, I recalled it had once adorned his dining room. As I sat stunned, the thought came to mind that Goya was crazy, and I should have studied French. For more of my work, please visit my blog, therobenun.blogspot.com. Thank you. I'm Casabella Wilson. I'm going to read a poem after a painting by Hokusai in Japan in 1830, the artwork is called Mount Fuji in clear weather. This is a tanka, a Japanese form. Clear summer evening. Getting ready for the great ball, Mount Fuji puts on her red dress. Casabella Wilson, you can Google poets on site, S-I-T-E. The group that I created, we've done 35 programs and books on art, music, 
gardens, science, all inspired many poets together, anthologies. The diving bird. The artist must have seen the bird in its wild dive towards the sea. He painted the sweep of wing, the torpedo body, as it aims for water, a suggestion caught in a smudge of paint, a moment's thought for colour to sit against the dark grey sky, a flick of wrist, a blur at the edge of vision. Look at that diving bird, I said. What bird? she asked. She did not see it. No one did. But it is there, suspended forever. A streak of grey light, moments from its strike. That was Jim Bennett with his poem, The Diving Bird. Jim is from the United Kingdom. He's been a participant in Poetry Superhighway stuff for many, many years. Really good to have a poem from Jim in the book. He runs the poetrykit.org website, which is a major poetry resource and publication out of the United Kingdom. Up next, we have a poem from Benjamin Taylor Lally from Framingham, Massachusetts. A poem submitted posthumously by Julie Ann C. That is, uh, she's the one who submitted the poem. The poem is by M.A. Griffiths. It'll be read by Anne Drysdale. M.A. Griffiths was a poet who lived in the United Kingdom. It'll be followed by a poem from Santa Barbara poet Paris Longo. Then one from April Salzano from Newcastle, Pennsylvania. Then Deborah P. Kaloji from Temple City, California, where I went to high school. And we'll close out the next set with two poems from Brooke Dorn, who lives in Robinson, Illinois. On the Weeping Statue of Madonna by Benjamin Taylor Lally. With furious passion, the newsmen invaded the once vibrant village to plunder for proof that these visceral droplets were somehow related to the uncanny absence of sickness. Find truth. Take a photograph. Strike up some witnesses. The newspaper editors, giggling, giddy, scoff at the evidence, call it ridiculous, and make it a front-page story. The city never retreats from conveniently heartwarming stories, but few will admit they believe that such tales can be true in this era of science. But the villagers noticed, before they'd depart, the reporters and crews were reluctant to leave and would stare at the statue in almighty silence. Advertising Arsenic by M.A. Griffiths Read by Anne Drysdale. The image that sticks with me is Emma stuffing whiteness into her mouth like sherbet powder. She does it on the run, I think, her long skirts curling around her legs like neglected cats. She swipes her mouth with the back of her hand. Then she says, half to herself, half to me, I will lie down now and go to sleep. That's how we both want it. The soft blink into a deep, gentle end. But I know, and how does she not know, that there is pain and retching 
Long hours stretched with suffering till the body exhausts the light. Listen, Emma. Woody Allen says he's not afraid of dying. Just doesn't want to be around when it happens. We understand that, don't we? I understand you. Feel your desperation. The last leap into darkness that turns out to be a flame. I would take your hand, help you step over the style of flesh into the green and freedom of the next field where they are picnicking in a blur of meadow flowers. Instead, we stick here like flies nailed to a windscreen by a rush of wind that chills our eyes. I will leave, Emma. Be gone, finally. And you will always run and try to escape. Your stomach will heave, your guts will grind again and again. But you never lived. You have that mercy. Yet I cannot forget you. Cannot dislodge the teaser of you from my hair. I carry your weight like an unwanted child. Longo reading Peasant's Bathing after the Goose Girl, Jean-Francois Millet, 1863. I happened to write this poem, uh, which was on exhibit at the Santa Barbara Museum of Art, and some of us have been asked uh, to write poems of a particular exhibit that was up, so I was drawn to this picture for the reason the poem suggests. Peasant Bathing by Perry Longo. My mother always said she married my common stock father to balance her southern aristocracy. A daddy's girl, no wonder I'm drawn to the goose girl, her clothes flung off in forest shadows where the cow grazes, and the artist works breathless, brush trembling, a gaggle of geese nearby. Thinking herself alone a little warm, she tests the brook's coolness with her toe. I'm reminded of a time hiking on a hot summer day I came upon a river, its ripples struck with ir- irresistible light. I told my husband to stand guard, should some stray happen along, and strip right there in the woods, plunged in among ducks and dragonflies, relieved in the bliss of my bathing. Then the call, people coming. Around the bend came a whole gaggle of Boy Scouts. We gawked at each other. Me half in, half out, blushing, their mouths hanging open at my ample breasts, my husband brushing them off. Uh, I can be reached uh, by email at perry at west.net, P-E-R-I-E at west.net, or on my website, www.perrylongo.com. Thanks so much. Bye for now. What my autistic son might say to Wilhelm Hammershoy. Thank you for the dying light, the dancing dust motes, the rooms that are anything but empty. Places are always fullest when they seem to be deserted. Panes form perfect angles, contrasted by light. A singular figure only appears to be remaining intentionally positioned facing away, only as important as a piece of furniture, complementing vertical placement to restore balance. I, too, see exactly and only what is there, the beauty of what is not. 
Hi, my name is April Saldano. This work was written after viewing several pieces by Hammer Scheu and wondering, as the title says, how my autistic son might articulate his perception if he could. The piece is from my recently finished collection, dealing with this and other issues of autism. I hope you enjoyed it. After the Last Spaceship by Deborah P. Kologi. This was written for The Rag Picker by Edward Manet, 1865. I wrote this poem while sitting in front of the painting at the Norton Simon Museum in Pasadena, California. After the last spaceship, 20 rotations of this dusty planet, no one's coming back to this barren place. A fixture on the corner of an abandoned spaceport, he has a hole in his left knee of weatherproof pants. Manet's rag picker embodied in shadowed eyes, a walking stick in hand, trash by his foot. His overgrown beard hides life's sorrows in the way of vagabonds from inhabited spheres. A dying world's value born in a shoulder sack with no one else available to shoulder the load. The Door Effect, written by Brooke Dorn, read by Brooke Dorn, based off a painting by an unknown artist. The painting I found at a local thrift shop quickly became a bore. Even with all of its beautiful colors, the painting was still of a door. Squinting in the Light, written by Brooke Dorn, read by Brooke Dorn, based off Vincent Van Gogh's painting Starry Night, which was painted in 1889. The blue and yellow swirls make the night sky come alive. The moon resembles the sun. The stars are not stellar, but exist in compliance, while reality comes undone. I squint my eyes at its beauty and wish that my computer screen was bigger. My name is Brooke Dorn. I live in Robinson, Illinois. I currently write fiction novels not yet published. I also write book reviews for www.readdreamrelax.com. I had a poem published in 2002 in the Anthology of Poetry by Young Americans, and I have a blog detailing my current writing career at www.questingandagent.blogspot.com. If you'd like to get a hold of me, send me an email on my blog. I'd love to hear from you. I'm also a member of Google+. Thanks for your time. You're listening to a publication reading for Ekphrastia Gone Wild here on Poetry Superhighway Live. Poetry Superhighway Live is the radio arm of the Poetry Superhighway website. We do an open reading once a month. Check out our schedule so you could know when you can call in and read a poem to our worldwide audience. Coming up next is a poem from Dusan Kolovic from Belgrade, Serbia followed by a poem from Neil Whitman from Pacific Grove, California, immediately followed by a poem about Rodin from Los Angeles poet Jerry Quickly. And we'll close out the next set with a poem from Timothy Charles Anderson from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, which includes original music and listen for it, a dog barking.
Hello, Dusan Charlovic speaking from Belgrade. I'm author of 18 books of poetry and six anthologies. I'll read you a poem inspired by Vincent van Gogh's picture, Whitfield with Cypress. The Bite. Gilded with spike of a disquiet quake, I inhale the nectar of the moment. A breeze washes my dreams. In the soul's membrane, a flame reflects. Under the sun's eyebrow, in the charm meadow, through a quiver. New summer is resurrected, imprinted upon a slice of bread is the God's bite. This is Neil Whitman, who is inspired by the 1896 painting, Children at Play on the Beach, by Henry Pothast. He is known for his paintings of people at leisure on the beaches of New York and New England. In my childhood, I spent summers on Winthrop Beach, on the north shore of Boston. Until I learned how to swim, my mother had a rule that I was not to go in the water over my belly button. First impression epigrams. Until you can swim, go in only belly button deep. Does the 30 minutes after you eat rule still apply? Studies show that children laugh 400 times a day. Adults only 14. Is that why children live longer? Dogs on the beach are so happy to see each other. Why do I detest people at the airport? I do not have a website, but my poems can be found by Googling Neil Whitman Poet. And there is a lot there posted by journals that have published my work. I wrote Rodin Speaks With His Hands because my first job out of college, one of my clients uh, amassed and collected a very large body of Rodin's work. And uh, I was equally impressed and repulsed by that. And I kind of wanted to write a poem about the gluttony of art pigs and the problems of Wall Street and you know, whatever else is racing through my mind. But I loved the work of Rodin so much and it uh, touched me on such, in such a foundational way that I suddenly found myself not writing the poem I thought I wanted to write. And I wrote this. Rodin speaks with his hands. The thinker has hands and feet that are just a little too large for his body. Over and over again in Rodin's work, bodies perfectly proportioned, all except the hands and feet. Too large, slightly distorted, the artist's clear metaphor, the subject's hands and feet gnarled and scarred from the weight of existence, layered betrayals. They'd walked great distances, carried heavy burdens. They existed, and Rodin knew they'd need big hands and feet. The ones we were given are too puny for the tasks of this world. Tiny casters on immense bodies of work, requiring dainty waltzes through valleys where blind spirits push whimsy in boulders, where great bodies of memory are authored through equal parts fear and glacier. We walk in places where backs are broken as easily as promises, 
Rodin travels with me and shows me what's needed to survive. The span of his art evokes twinklings as precious and transient as a child's yawn, holding me up like a suspension bridge, gazing at the water and rocks roaring below. He had passed on by the time I was born. He had passed on by the time I was grown. He had passed on by the time my hands grew large enough to sustain memories and hold children. He had passed on by the time my feet broadened to size 17 and helped distance me from the sweep of chaos and the derisive primacy of my most distant glaciers that still block the sun and play host to my antiquities, my ellipses, my confirmations and retributions, grace and slur, all in the same breath. Firm beliefs in gardens that don't bloom and instead play host to absenteeism and crooked choices. Congregations of pack animals, bipedal promises and knuckle-walking, cuneiform details that fix results and ensure liberty is as likely as hugging the sun. The fix is in, and the closest you get to love is to bask in its promise. As you keep close to the pack, just in case you're wrong, just in case your feet aren't big enough, just in case your hands aren't strong enough, just in case the flash blinds you and Rodan can no longer help. Hi, my name is Timothy Charles Anderson. I live in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I'm going to read for you the poem entitled Before the Canvas. It is based on an oil painting by Cassius Marcellus Coolidge called A Bold Bluff. It features dogs playing poker, and it was commissioned in 1903 to advertise cigars. One of the dogs in the painting, Judge St. Bernard, doesn't have a good hand. But if he can convince the other players that he does, they will surrender and he will win by default. Deception is an important part of the game of poker. Art, on the other hand, should aim for truth. Now, this painting is also an advertisement, so maybe we're going to have to dig deeper for the truth. Let's go behind the scenes to see the artist in action. Before the canvas. Was there anyone bothered that the artist brought the easel and the brushes to the parlor? Because he could have been signaling somebody from that angle, most cards were in easy view. Coolidge clearly was an artist of integrity, silent as chips slid back and forth, bets raised. Sweat glistened on the judge's nose, a tell still no one knew until the bogus hand had landed. Therefore, we surmise he was an honest man, faithfully representing the game of poker. I guess he didn't embellish, add extra chips to the stack, or make two pair into a flush. Maybe he won them over with a joke, drawing them another drink or lighting their cigars. Good guy to have around when the barking starts and nobody is allowed to leave the table. Thanks for listening. To contact me or for more of my poetry, come to my website, freerangeartists.com, or search Timothy Charles Anderson on the web. Thank you, Timothy. There's 
just about nothing I like better than animal sounds, along with poetry. You're listening to a publication reading for Ekphrastia Gone Wild. My name is Rick Lupert. I'm the editor of the book, Ekphrastia Gone Wild, out this year on Ain't Got No Press. A little bit more than halfway through, we're going to get into our next set now with a couple of poets from the United Kingdom, starting with Alan Wicks with his poem, Nude Descending a Staircase. He's from Derbyshire in the United Kingdom. That'll be followed by the poem, Quiet City, from Mance York, who is from Manchester, England. After that, it'll be Kenneth Pobo from Media, Pennsylvania, with his poem, In Krustov's House Near St. Prey. It'll be followed by our second poem from Fern G.Z. Carr from Canada, uh, which will be followed by the first of two poems from Ellerain Lockie, who lives in Sunnyvale, California. Ellerain has been a, a judge in a recent Poetry Superhighway Poetry Contest. Uh, her first poem, The Bath, will be followed by a poem from Michael Verga from Birmingham, Alabama, who's a frequent participant in Poetry Superhighway live open readings and a uh, an active poet in the Birmingham, Alabama scene, in particular at the Birmingham Museum of Art. His poem, Wonder Worker, will be followed by the second poem from Ellerain Lockie, untitled by Paul Clay, uh, followed by a poem from A.J. Huffman from Ormond Beach, Florida. We'll hear her poem, I Am Rhinoceros, and the next set will close with a poem from Catherine Graham from Newcastle on Time in the United Kingdom, her poem, Landscape from a Dream. The following poem is called New Descending a Staircase by Alan Wicks, and is a response to the uh, famous painting by Marcel Duchamp, the same name. And it's dedicated to Mike Alexander, who's a poet who works in Houston. Not because, as far as I know, he has any particular penchant for running downstairs with no clothes on, but because he is the, uh, and has been for many years, the administrator and leading light behind the Sonnet Board, which is the Internet's premier site for promoting that form. The obvious question no one ever asks is why descend a staircase in the nude? Giorgione's sleeping Venus calmly basks within the green Arcadian dream, imbued with golden light, while Sandro's Aphrodite drifts shorewards in a coy, pubescent pose. The classicist myself, I shun the sprightly, preferring nudes depicted in repose. Although an antelope in flight looks sleek, not so the human. In truth, Athletic heroes, a la Grec, who proudly streak towards the winning post, seem unesthetic. We note a slight anatomical failure, godlike physique, but boyish genitalia. If you enjoyed the poem and would like to read some more of my work, probably the easiest way of finding it on the net is just simply to type in Alan Wick's poet into the search engine, and you'll find a range of sites there, my own website, Mike Burke's Hypertext, and uh, Sounddesign, amongst other, that um, include examples of my work, uh, either in written, video, or uh, audio form. This poem, Quiet City, 
has two sources. First, Giorgio de Chirico's Melancholy and Mystery of a Street, 1914, which has a shadow coming out of a side street and you can't see what it is. Secondly, Aaron Copeland's Quiet City, in which there is a solo trumpet, amongst other things. Quiet City. We look back, golden concrete phalanxed in black, shrinks into the distance. The litter of boxes, cans and plastic bags we left has been efficiently cleaned up. Only the darkness of buildings remains twisted in the gutter. No one moves outside their black glazed blocks at this hour. The shadow stretching towards us from the side street might be a statue for all we know. Columns are scratching at the foundation's decaying cement, and ivory shoots are searching beneath the slabs for cracks of light. Thinly, keener than Mezin's core, the solo trumpet slices through the calm. My name is Kenneth Hobo. Marianne von Werefkin was a Russian-Swiss expressionist painter. In Krustov's house near St. Prex, a single blossom sets a tablecloth on fire. When you sit alone behind a plate, your life over, or seeming that way, the bouquet says that the river inside the heart that can't be crossed stills and allows passage. Dishes negotiate the tiny space between us, less than an inch apart, with a flowery smell. The lamp that tenuously hangs knows your name and secrets. Night thickens like batter. In the morning, you spread butter on, forget all the arguments you had about truths that suddenly seem like snow easing down a pain. I can be reached at my email address, kgpobo at verizon.net. My name is Fern G. Zedkar. I'm originally from Winnipeg, Canada, and the Golden Boy is the landmark statue in Winnipeg, as I explain in the poem. So here is Golden Boy. Bronze Adonis gilt in gold, balanced atop the dome of the legislative building, cradling a sheaf of wheat and raising a torch like a relay runner poised to pass the baton. You are toned. Buff. In the buff. Naughty naked boy, where's your common sense? Facing northward, flaunting your manhood and exposing your full glory to raw Winnipeg winters? If you'd like to learn more about me and my craft, please visit my website at www.ferngzcar.com. And if you happen to be from Canada, that would be www.ferngzcar.com. The bath. She stares straight ahead, stretched out soaking au naturel in a stark white tub and trance-like state, blind to his brush strokes. Pierre Bonnard's wife subject, portrayed at a time when water therapy was treatment for tuberculosis or excessive neurosis. One wonders whether she wasn't already dead the water having fatally failed, and the corpse prepared for viewing with oil paint preservation. Banar's depiction a conjugal composition inquest, or whether she has succumbed to coma, 
paint paralyzed by the parade of people invading her privacy. The Tate Gallery, a modern municipal bathroom. Greetings from Michael Verga, and not just at Christmas time, for an occasional poem should rise above the occasion. I was inspired to write these lines after viewing Norman Rockwell's 1922 canvas, The Day After Christmas. I viewed it at the museum in my home city, the Birmingham Museum of Art, in winter of 2012. The little poem is entitled Wonder Worker. Santa's sack emptied. Now he's sacked out, spent on childhood. Untitled by Paul Clay You have so eloquently labeled your art, and I so ineptly escape your logic. The donkey where I see a pig. Pickle the clown who looks to me like a native Indian dancer. Juggles in April. A map mangled in midair. Although I do see California community manners in your neighborhood doors maze, I can't, for the life of me, find a female form in the folds of hero mother. Yet I come to an inked pond, floating on gold-edged paper, with graphic birds, trees, and wetland grass, and you've tagged it untitled. I am rhinoceros, in lace dress, shredded, flowing. It was a bitch to get it over my horns. In desperately dull desert winds, I wander and wonder, what is the point? This menial existence reigns existential chaos, holds no cosmic meaning, only occasional comedic value. Droll backroom chitters, the fire that fuels me. I thrust forward, onward, over, under, through, every elongating hand, dripping time. An interesting shade of disharmony to paint my toes. Hi, this is A.J. Huffman. This piece was inspired by two Salvador Dali pieces. The first is a painting called The Persistence of Memory, created in 1931. The second was a sculpture called Rhinoceros Dressed in Lace, created in 1956. I hope you enjoyed the work. Thank you. I'm Catherine Graham from Newcastle-on-Tyne in England. It really is such an honor for me to have a poem included in this wonderful anthology. And the thought that perhaps my poem might be looked at and studied by young people in schools across America just blows me away. This is Landscape from a Dream, after the painting by war artist Paul Nash. Two skies in this mind game, one sunlit, the other blood-stained, a large mirror and empty frames, strange how the spheres bounce into the distance, their shadows reversed. The reddened sky terrifies me, I'd swear if I look closely I see a kneeling rifleman behind your menacing black bird. Thank you, Catherine. We're also excited about 
the possibility of your poem being read by high school students throughout the United States. Uh, what she's referring to is there's a new Common Core Education Standard which was adopted by many, many schools throughout the United States of America, which for ninth and 10th graders essentially requires them to write an ekphrastic poem, compare it to works of art through a poem. So it's our goal to try to get Ekphrastia Gone Wild into the hands of every high school student in America as a textbook, as a resource to help satisfy that common core education standard. And if you go to the website, poetrysuperhighway.com slash EGW, and you click on the teacher's resources link, you'll find uh, more information about that common core education standard for ninth and 10th graders in the U.S., as well as lesson plans uh, to uh, that teachers can use as a resource for teaching ekphrastic poetry in their classrooms and getting their students to write ekphrastic poems. You'll find there's some lesson plans that, uh, that are available freely on the internet from various resources, as well as a couple of really wonderful lesson plans written by a couple of contributors to Ekphrastia Gone Wild, specifically about their poems in the book. So check it out, poetrysuperhighway.com slash EGW. And if any teachers are listening and they're interested in using these lesson plans, go right ahead. But if uh, more uh, more specifically you're interested in getting copies of the book for your classroom, we're offering generous discounts, really generous discounts, off the retail price for you. So give me a send me an email at rick at poetrysuperhighway.com, and I'll send you more info on that. All right, next up is a poem from Kathleen M. Kruger from Brainerd, Minnesota, her poem Reflection. That will be followed by a poem from Graham Fulton from Paisley, Scotland. Graham is another person who's been participating for many years in Poetry Superhighway projects. Uh, after that, a couple of poems from Southern California. First up, Laurel Ann Bogan with her first poem in the book called The Day I Had the Terrible Fear. After that, Eric Lawson from Inglewood, California, with his poem Oldenburg's Bride. Right after that, there'll be a poem from David Trollton from Phoenix, Arizona, the poem A Last Hurrah. Then Robert Wynn with his poem American Collectors. And the next set will close out with Cows by Simon Jackson from Edinburgh in the United Kingdom. Reflection, poem based on a photograph by Dorothea Lang, picturing a mother and her children on the road. You live by default. No decision brought you here. Don't think, don't question. Do what needs to be done at the moment to survive. It's easier that way. Feed the children, fuel the car, sleep, drive, sleep. I recognize you. I've seen you in the mirror. My name is Graham Fulton from Scotland. This is a poem about a Salvador Dali painting that hangs in the Kelvin Grove Gallery in Glasgow. 
Dally Rage. At the foot of Christ of St. John of the Cross, a man in a 70s Soviet top with CCCP in big white type gets miffed as he tries to photograph the immaculate oil on his virgin phone. Excuse me, he tuts to pensioner gangs who shuffle his arty field of fire. Worshippers keep on barging across with buggies, crisps and summerfield bags. He turns an atheist shade of red. He feels as if he's about to burst. A small boy with a Roman helmet squeezes and weaves his way to the front, determined to get a place at the crucifixion, Jesus without a face, hanging a mile above the sea. Everyone loves a madman with taste. Forgive them, Sal, they know not what they do. Messiahs bring out the worst. To contact me or find out more about my work, visit my website www.grahamfultonpoetry.com Hello, this is Laurel Ann Bogan reading the poem The Day I Had the Terrible Fear inspired by the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still directed by Robert Wise that scared the bejesus out of me when I was a young woman slash girl. The big no sits on my chest, and I think I'm only 56, but the invitation remains. Hiya, how you doing? Have some coffee and some pie. Have a serrated bread knife. I cannot name it, yet it squanders my daylight. Black familiar coin of the psycho trade. I remember it each time it leaves me crouched and flinching. Still I brazen fate and furies after a fashion. The big no is indiscriminate. It doesn't care that I'm a famous Los Angeles poet. It will erode everything. It takes away the words, man. It takes away the words. You can find out more about Laurel Ann Bogan and my poems and poetry by going to my website at laurelannbogan.com. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Eric Lawson, and my poem is entitled Oldenburg's Bride, which was inspired by the Oldenburg exhibit at the MOCA Museum a few years ago, and it's included in Ekphrastia Gone Wild. Oldenburg's Bride. She was obsessed with hand grips and soft scissor-shaped pillows. She liked the grips because they creaked and the soft scissors because they were useless, just like her husband. She always wore green stockings and blue and pink pantyhose. She insisted upon wearing these items because they comforted her and because they annoyed others, just like her husband. She loitered every day at the truck stop under the Pepsi sign. Cigarettes in a pack, chocolates in a box, Pentecostal cross, all were on her person, all were her lucky charms, all reminded her of her carefree and fun single life in the city. But that life is gone now, just like her husband. 
You can get in touch with me through Facebook. Thank you. A Last Hurrah, poem on the painting The Tea Party by Philip C. Curtis. They're obviously from the age before ours, two ladies at the table with hands folded on their laps, a third in evening dress with a matching scarf caught in the breeze of time, and a man the size of a child sitting on the porch's edge, not knowing where to look. The woodwork is the immaculate achievement of someone who cares, someone for whom it was necessary to ornament as well as to contain a space. Even surrounded by hard earth and rock, every detail from a pillar's base to the fine strips cut by a loving knife and the circular reliefs set just below the overhang bears a craftsman's fingerprints. Nothing is served to suggest an imminent change, but this is the last tea before machines arrive to strip the landscape to its veins of ore. This is Robert Wynn, and my poem, American Collectors, was inspired by a 1968 painting by California artist David Hockney. Uh, it was a painting of the Weissmans, a uh, couple that collected art, and I liked how he captured them and their style based on the pieces of art that inhabited their uh, surroundings. So this is American Collectors. The Weissmans inhabit their sculpture garden like they've collected each other late sun throwing long shadows across the sparse scene. Marsh's white teeth and pink caftan serve as beacons next to a young tree in its pale terracotta pot. Fred is fixed firmly in place behind three rocks stacked waist high. He faces to the right so he could be looking at his bright wife or the very blue sky or even the totem pole, peeking over some low shrubs and grinning like the only one who's ever been in on the joke. You can find me online at www.rwynne.com. Thanks. I grew up in a rural area in Derbyshire, in the middle of England, and I was always awed by cows, their majesty and calm. On misty days they loom through the fog, like becalmed ships, ghostly galleons. Their lowing was a melancholy cross between a foghorn and a cry of pain. And I've always loved their eyes, huge dark pools that hold a deep wisdom and sadness. Sometimes one would rest its chin on the dry stone wall by the path that I walked to school along. I'd stop and stare into its eyes and it seemed to recognize my every terrible deed and dark thought, and accept them sadly. Later, when I moved to Manchester and discovered Pink Floyd, I'd look at the cover art to Atom Heart Mother by Hypnosis, with one Frisian cow on the front and more on the back, and they'd remind me of my childhood and the terrible knowledge those cows seemed to hold. I'm now sitting in the garden, outside my house on the outskirts of Cairo, it's after curfew and is unnaturally quiet. I'm thinking about the terrible deaths that have happened here over the last month in Egypt and the quiet acceptance with which most people have taken them. And this poem feels very prescient. I'm Simon Jackson, and this is simply called Cows.
They know the end is coming. They carry the knowledge of violent destruction, welling up within huge, sad eyes. It is not despair that makes them move that way, one slow joint slotting into the next, each step slumped like a dropped sack of manure. It is not despair, it is acceptance. Buddhas of the grasslands, the sideways chomp is a meditation, the lowing moan an incantation, the universal om channeled through soft throats held low to the ground. They guide in the apocalypse, low, pendulous udders counting down, laden with milk that none will drink. Thank you, Simon. I know that all over the world we're mooing in solidarity with your past. Thank you for that poem. You're listening to a publication reading for Ekphrastia Gone Wild, poems inspired by art, a new anthology from Ain't Got No Press, available at poetrysuperhighway.com slash EGW, also available on Amazon uh, in Europe as well as here in the United States, and probably orderable through any place that is able to order books. So check it out. It's a really stellar collection with uh, 87 poets from all over the world. Here on today's broadcast, you're hearing... 60 of the poems sent in by the poets themselves in the book. Uh, for the most part, a couple of poems you've already heard were read by other people, poets who had passed away. Uh, and we've got another 18 or so poems yet to go in a few different sets. Coming up next is a poem from M.J. Ayupa from Hamlin, New York. M.J. will be followed by the poem Da 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 Boo Boo which I'm very much looking forward to, from Mick Moss in Liverpool, England. Right after that, we'll have Adam Kress with his poem, Louis Armstrong Painted Over Music Notes. That's Adam Kress, who lives in Bryan's Road, Maryland. He'll be followed with a couple, well, actually three poems from Los Angeles poets, starting with Maggie Westland, her poem, Warhol. She's from Thousand Oaks, California. Elizabeth Iannacci from L.A., her poem, The Party, And the set will close out with the second and last poem from Laurel Ann Bogan, also from Los Angeles, California. Her poem, The Door for Love and Death. Hello, I'm MJ Ayupa, and I would like to read my poem included in Ekfraxia Gone Wild. The poem is titled, A Time Comes When You No Longer Think It, and it's after George Baselet's painting, Nude Elkie II, 1976. I first viewed this painting in an exhibit in 2009. The painting exhibit was called Paint Made Flesh, and here it is briefly described. Even at a time when figurative works were considered outmoded, the artists in Paint Made Flesh dedicated themselves to exploring the physical and emotional power of the human body. Their works, many of them larger than life, use paint to simulate the look and feel of flesh while delving into universal themes of sexuality, illness, aging, and death. The results are colorful, unconventional, and often unflinching. And this is the reason why I was attracted uh, to many of the paintings in that exhibit. So here's the poem. 
A time comes when you no longer think it. After George Baselet's painting, Nude Elkie 2, 1976. 1. Slumped upside down in a straight-back chair, naked, feet pushed together, knees apart, hands crossed at the wrist, folded, like sparrow wings, covering a transparent nest. 2. Hiding out in the open is the last place anyone looks. Smudge of charcoal above your breast, bottleneck, your face gone ashen, swallowing your tongue. 3. Colder still, the studio's chiaroscuro. A curse or kiss could finish you. His paint, his smell, his clothes piled on the chair behind you. 4. How does it work to be elsewhere when you're here? The pose you hold indefinitely crowds him. You can tell by the way he steps back. Thank you. My name is MJ Ayupa, and if you want to see my blog, you can go to mjayupa.blogspot.com. Dada Boo Boo. Dada came to London in 1977 at the Tate. Being a fan, I made a big effort. Shiny red shoes, a pink beret, and blue overalls, with wanker tastefully stenciled across the back in brilliant white emulsion. But they didn't get the joke, and I was politely asked to leave. Mick Moss is a 60-year-old novelist, poet, screenwriter, living in Liverpool, UK. I've been writing all my life, full-time since 2000. I run creative writing workshops covering short stories, novels, screenplays, stage plays and poetry all over the northwest of England. Contact details are email m055 at talktalk.net. Snail mail address is number 1 Green Hayes Road, Liverpool, L80SX, UK. My name is Adam Kress, and I'll be reading my poem, Louis Armstrong, Painted Over Music Notes, um, for Whitney Gray, daughter of Steve Gray, who was an artist in Wichita Falls, Texas, and um, he did installation pieces of jazz artists, and this is um, written about her favorite work that he did. Um, so I'll go ahead and read. Um, Louis Armstrong, Painted Over Music Notes, for Whitney. You must love like Louis Armstrong, painted over music notes, multidimensional, a texture installation piece, colorful and soulful, essence juxtaposed atop notes and lines, even your negative space has meaning, like the music notes, despite their black and white, shape connoting depth, inextricably intertwined, like Satchmo's trumpet, Tied to his spirited rock. You are the feminine cleft, keeping the notes in perfect time. You must love, like Louis Armstrong, painted over music notes. Should anybody want to get in contact with me, I can be reached by email at acress05 at gmail.com. Thank you. I'll be reading a poem which was written after I visited the opening exhibition of the Broad Contemporary Art Museum in L.A. in February of 2008. 
I was totally blown away by the enormity of the canvas and the irony of it being titled Camouflage. Warhol from Camouflage by Andy Warhol, 1986. If you want to be really ironic, take a couple of buckets of green and brown paint. Take a couple of months to design just the right shades of gray to add in, to make all the squiggly lines interact on your page, which is made up of yards of compact, dense fabric. Make sure you display your creation in a prominent place. Say your name is Andy and scrawl it in an equally prominent script. Go away and pretend you are hiding. Call your work Camouflage. If you want to see more of my poetry, you can go online and Google Maggie Westland or check out my website, www.maggiewestland.com. This is Elizabeth Iannacci. This poem is called The Party. It was inspired by a poster called The Great Appear to be Great Because We Ourselves Are Standing on Our Knees by Valentina Ergorovna and Viktor Konstantinovich Dorokov. It depicts three brightly colored balloons the shape of the heads of Lenin, Engels, and Stalin, and it was part of the Deconstructing Perestroika exhibition at the Craft and Folk Art Museum in Los Angeles. This is The Party. Okay, the guest list. Start with the famous. Stalin, Engels, Lenin, Krupskaya, Maybe Trotsky and Jack Reed. Ask Che to come by and by. Don't even think about inviting your boss. Leave the water balloons in the sink. You won't need them until later. Make sure you get rid of the engineers. They'll want to plan everything. The professors will just rest their small hands on their waistcoats, shake their beards, and make us all feel bad. So let's not include them. The lawyers can come as long as they're quiet. Don't let the logistics stop you. It's not complicated. Building the Panama Canal was complicated. Financing the rebellion, creating the Panamanian state, the jungle, the Chagres River, the yellow fever, the malaria. Where to put all that dirt? You won't have to deal with any of that, even if there is a mosquito or two. For food, you can let everyone eat cake. Next, the invite. Choose a flashy graphic, something red and gold, perhaps a drawing of a tool or two. Then a catchy slogan, to each according to his greed, or workers of the world keep right. Use homeland and mother country as often as you can. That'll spark interest with the regular folks. Once you get a good rousing soundtrack, you'll be home free. Remember, it sounded good to millions once, it'll still sound good to somebody somewhere. Now, put your tongue back in your mouth and hit send. Thank you for listening. If you need to contact me for any reason, you may at swine.song at yahoo.com. Thanks. This is Laurel Ann Bogan. I'm reading my poem, The Door for Love and Death, inspired by the great Slovenian poet Tomas Salamun who wrote a poem entitled Doors in 1997. 
You push the shadow against the wall. Open the door for love and death. What rooms are rented there? In the room of exquisite torture, a woman watches her lover shave. In the room of hopeless romantic, a man weeps before a portrait of Voltaire. In the room of maternal instinct, the rose is embalmed. In the room of amorous adventure, both doors hide the tiger. In the room of my life, I give up one and love the other. Should you wish to find out more about me, my website is moralandbogan.com. Thank you very much. No, thank you, Laurel. Just want to clarify the spelling of Laurel's website in case you want to find out more about her and who wouldn't want to find out more about Laurel Ann Bogan. I think the NSA has an entire building just for her. Anyway, it's L-A-U-R-E-L. A-N-N-B-O-G-E-N dot com. That's Laurel M. Bogan. My name is Rick Lupert. I'm the editor of Ekphrastia Gone Wild. You're listening to a publication reading online virtual style for that book, Ekphrastia Gone Wild, Poems Inspired by Art. Check it out at poetrysuperhighway.com slash E-G-W. We've got just two more sets of poems for you to finish out the book. The first set... We'll begin with a poem by Noel Sloboda from York, Pennsylvania. It'll be followed by the poem written in and to be performed in the style or an approximation of the style of Billy Collins by Carolyn A. Martin from Clackama, Oregon. Try saying the title of that poem a hundred times fast. Right after that, we'll hear the poem The Falling Man from Fiona Curran from London, England. Then the poem Paterno Statue with Football Players in Background by Leland James from Bel Air, Michigan. Immediately followed by the poem Bugger This for a Game of Soldiers by Anne Drysdale. We heard Anne read a little bit earlier the poem from uh, M.A. Griffiths. We'll hear her own poem. And this set will be closed out by Suzanne Lummis from Los Angeles, California with her poem Woman and Apple. I'm Noel Sloboda, and this is The Love Song of John Curran, inspired by the painting Honeymoon Nude. Eve's skeleton sports a new suit, tags torn out, riddled with pinholes that release the red ochre of uncertainty and leave welts on the tongue. In dusky pre-dawn, The leer of this other mother glistens above an empty table, pinned across scabby knees, making it impossible to believe the moon will not feed itself to dawn. Hello, this is Carolyn Martin from Clackamas, Oregon, with a poem in honor of Billy Collins and his piece, Fishing on the Susquehanna in July. Written in and to be performed in the style 
or an approximation of the style of Billy Collins. Before the canvas, he brushes words. Blue sky, red bandana, green boat, a thin pole to fish the Susquehanna in July. Although he admits he's never fished the Susquehanna, perhaps doesn't even like fish July or red bandanas. I like Billy Collins. Actually, not the man Billy Collins, whom I've never met, except on YouTube, with his balding head, half-smile wit, and perfect words pointing to themselves and sometimes to other things. Nor the Billy Collins, who can mesmerize an audience with verbal acrobatics and flying twists that make me want to cry, how does he do this? In his drag suit coat, no tie, and black glasses he yo-yos from podium to nose. Rather, it's the poet who urges me to stand at my window each sunrise. Although the sun doesn't really rise in my backyard, it staggers through stands of Douglas fir 55 minutes after the newspaper says it should. It hesitates, then shyly appears. Anyway, as I was saying when Sun popped in, he wants me to ensure the neighbor's cat has not made its presence melt in flower beds near my back fence, and that someone is sitting at my table, waiting to listen to my poetry over cereal bowls, or in my house, over self-bread spread with coconut oil, a healthy alternative to corn syrup and other suspect things corporations hide on well-stocked shelves. Which is not to say raw milk wouldn't sit on his table, near a bowl of organic berries cultivated on the banks of the Susquehanna by fishermen's wives, particularly those who hate fishy red bandanas and slime green boats, while they wait for men with thin poles to row a sunset home. The Falling Man by Fiona Curran The falling man has not landed yet. His limbs are still questioning the sky 30 floors on. Clothes rent by velocity, skin a flag flying the face, voice sandpapered away, and the sound, the sound, the roar before the body breaks. Accelerating into oblivion, human debris raining all around, he makes a beautiful mark on the sky. Nothing can catch him now. Wind whistling through the brain, chasing all coherent thoughts away. Everything he's ever lost or found is compacted, filed in mid-air eternity. Rushing up as he rushes down, to fold like paper into the ground. This is Leland James, here to read my poem, The Turno Statue with Football Players in Background, 2001, and Ekphrasis. Ekphrasis need not be a laudation, which the poem you're about to hear is certainly not. In fact, it attacks a work of art on two levels. Ekphrasis, which, by the way, has a couple of alternative pronunciations, the word, comes from the Greek outspeak or to speak out. The recent Joe Paterno flat prompted me to do just that. Paterno's statue with football players in background, 2001. From a plaque on the statue, quote, Joseph Vincent Paterno, 
educator, coach, humanitarian, and so One might imagine, once upon a time, Joe's numero uno finger pointedly up, 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 receiving sparks divine, God's digit touching his, an all-American atom of celebrity pristine to touch Sistine. But then, a small plane flies overhead, a banner tailing an artistic afterthought, a fluttering addendum to 9,000 pounds of bronze below. Take the statue down, or we will. Joe's sport coat flies bat cape like behind. No joker cries the superhero to the circling plane. Here I stand, my boys, dull shadows on the wall, will lift me above a mere assistant pedophile. Go pink and black, students rally behind the icon, with not a hint of irony, cursing the sky, art punks on CNN. The work itself, seen through the haze, a yellowish, prosaic claymation, a histronic abomination, a bronze cartoon from the get-go. Go, Joe. Go. You can find more of my poems and receive a free download of my recent book, Inside Apple, at www.williamjamespoet.com. Thanks for listening. The story has it that when the computer wizards fabricated the battle scenes for Lord of the Rings, the director decreed that each figure should be programmed to act as an individual. And during the first conflict, some of them ran away. Bugger this for a game of soldiers. Hiding in the enhanced hills of the Antipodes, we're doing not too badly, all things considered. We have each of us chosen to step outside the picture and watch it dispassionately, without benefit of popcorn. We happy few. We voluntary outtakes. Virtually indestructible, having no substance. Sort out our several ways into this haven. Like legionnaires. We do not discuss our reason. We are a small fistful of hand-knitted fictions, with fellowship programmed digitally into our pixels. Having been created utterly true to ourselves, we cannot now be false to one another. And so we fudge, we orcs, elves, wraiths and rohirrim, carousing round the fire, in a ring. This is Suzanne Lummis. I'm going to read a poem called Woman in Apple, inspired by a painting by Rachel McCampbell. That's in Tennessee, Nashville, and her painting was inspired by a poem of mine. Viewer, I may seem exposed, or let's be blunt, naked. Even so, this story belongs to me. Look to the northeast, those coppery breaststrokes, how they hint at shadow and flesh, bent knee, foot peddling forward, man who exits the scene as if pulled toward what happens next. But he's not the same man who arrived from some whereabouts, blinking in the changed light, straining to decipher my form. He's been reconfigured, rethought. And something took place here beyond the frame of your knowing. Note that my face conveys history, the royal of slow turning secrets, while his form means only departure. My feet languish in the spill of heated snow, warmed up rain, seven degrees cooler than my skin. This means something. 
regard yourself as intelligent, explain it to yourself. And you've mastered a bit of French. C'est n'est pas un pipe. This is not a pipe. So, of course, there's a apple. But did you know it's a herring and slippery, a false leaf? In fact, I'm dreaming of another food. Think autumn, crimson, underworld. It does not peel. Meanwhile, in a painting nearby, something stopped. The small pump, weight of a tongue tip in a bird's chest. The body falls wing over wing, searing a line through the air. Only a bird's eye could see. Dressed one, one who nods and moves on. Did you imagine I'd reveal myself to you? All right, I can be found on Facebook. Just spell my name right, L-U-M-M-I-S. That last little uh, image in the poem refers to another one of Rachel McCampbell's paintings that wanted to come here. Woman. That was Suzanne Lummis with her poem, Woman and Apple, written after a painting by the same name by artist Rachel McCampbell. You can actually check out Rachel's website and see that painting. And one of the ways that you can see many of the artworks, whether it's a painting or something else that inspired the poems that are in the book, Ekfrastia Gone Wild, is to go to our website, poetrysuperhighway.com slash EGW. And if you click on the contents slash artwork link in the submenu there, you'll see the entire table of contents. And in many cases, the poem titles are linked to images of the artwork after which the poems were written. So it's a great companion to the book. I mean, how cool to be able to actually see the artworks while reading the poems. Check it out, poetrysuperhighway.com slash EGW. All right, our final set of poems for this special publication reading for Ekfrastia Gone Wild will begin with the poem To Die with Eyes Wide Open from Stanley H. Barkin from Merrick, New York. That will be followed by Second Skin, which is the second poem in Ekfrastia Gone Wild by F.J. Bergman from Poinette, Wisconsin. We heard a poem from her earlier. Right after that, we'll hear Tagger by Los Angeles poet Gabrielle Middlebach, followed by Gynecology. A wonderful poem about a wall of vaginas by Eric Toison from Valencia, California. After that, we'll hear from Brendan Constantine with his poem, I Meaning You. He's a Los Angeles poet, and this is a very cool poem in the book, which was written not after a single work of art or after even the body of work of a single artist, as some of the poems in the book are. This was written after experiencing an entire evening of sensory input from all kinds of mediums. So that'll be Brendan Constantine's poem, I Meaning You, coming up in that set. Right after that, we'll hear the poem Anonymous Rooms with Automatons by Neil Elman from Livingston, New Jersey. And we'll close with the last poem in the book from Los Angeles poet Peggy Dobrir. It's her poem, The Louisville Slugger Strikes the Broken Cup of Peace. Stanley Barkin. I'm going to be reading uh, my poem, To Die with Eyes Wide Open. That's in Ekfrastia Gone Wild, Poems Inspired by Art. 
edited by Rick Lupert. The poem is based on a work of uh, photo art by Adele Gorgi, um, To Die With Eyes Wide Open from the Portfolio Portraits of Art, copyright 2006, and in a broadside cross-cultural communications art and poetry series broadside number seven. To die with eyes wide open. Out of the depths inside the pyramids, wide open eyes piercing the supernal dark, the enigma of existence, the last place captured here in a face, a portrait, a portal into the endless mystery where we have come from, where we are going, why we are here. Those interested in getting in touch with me can do so by email, cccpoetry at aol.com or at my website, www.cross-culturalcommunications.com. Thank you. This poem is about an untitled piece of art created by a fellow poet, Benjamin Pierce, in 2007. Second Skin by F.J. Bergman. The problem with tattoos is you have to show some skin for best effect. Knuckle letters on cold, stiffened fingers poking out from your parka suffer badly in comparison to snarling green dragons wreathed in plumes of fire that cover most of your glistening, oiled, naked torso. What a pity that most places require, at least, shorts. But a shirt you can wear all the time, pretty much. What's not to like about bright yellow single needle tailoring with arcane designs in black indelible paint frothing and clawing over every inch of buttercup colored cloth? Even the armpits flaunt the spoor of art. And if you go somewhere, you can't wear it. Draped over your bedside reading light, it would make one hell of a lampshade. For more stuff about me, go to fjbergman.com. Tagger. My neighbor whitewashed his wall today. While we slept, Pesci sprayed his name there in black. I have seen his name on the freeway, too. Pesci, near the Culver off-ramp and over by 26th Street. He's not artistic, but his lines are straight. At least his mother can say he has good penmanship. And he probably hung upside down off the overpass to paint the one by Venice. I think somewhere in the darkness, he shakes his aerosol can, and the bead inside hits metal and echoes in the hollowness. What is it about that sound that reminds us of our own hearts? Somewhere in the darkness, I shake my aerosol cans too, only they aren't cans. They are worries that rattle my gut. They are thoughts that tap, tap like water. They are my ears as I try to hear my made-up name. My Pesci, my Chaka, my Tuco, my Boon. They are my rasps as I try to speak it. 
And I don't know how it represents me. What does my name do? It might as well be a number. It could be 12. I made it up. I paint the walls with my name. My name. My made-up name. I want everyone to see it on street signs, on the road, in the bathroom stall. Maybe it will mean something to someone. Maybe someone will recognize it, their own name in it. Maybe if we look deep enough, we all have the same made-up name. This is a poem about vaginas. This is uh, based on the exhibit by Jamie McCartney called The Great Wall of China. This is called Gynecology. She is not a simple woman, she tells me. There is an embarrassing story, one of her husband who is not like her. They have gone and looked at a wall, a wall of vagina, different molds of vagina, 400 in all. Her husband, unlike her, cannot bear to look. He does not understand. Why must I look at these vaginas? How is this art? Yes. Leaves without her and later she scolds him. It's art supposed to be beautiful. Don't you think I'm beautiful? Later she asks me, What is your poetry like? And I think, if I could, I would tell her. But then there are things that happen, like what happened to her husband. I write and it starts with him, her husband, turns into pages of her, his wife, and go on and on details. There are pages of her with hair, the toes, every part. I stop to look over what I have written. And her husband comes into the gallery, and there is a detail on the wall. At first, he does not see it. There is too much, and then she points it out. There I am, she asks. She says, and he sees it, its shape and size, what he has felt, what he has gone through, so different from any other he has seen. And then he does not, gets lost in all the other parts. He does not understand where it is gone, where it is going. He sees other men and me looking for it, and wonders what we are going to do with it. The idea is nothing beautiful. There's nothing he likes. And later, when he leaves and the gallery is over, I have been watching and nowhere to find her. Later, I'm finished and there is a poem. And in the gallery, there is a wall. Someone walking away. Again, my name is Eric Swalcon. If you like my work, um, I have a book coming out either um, at the beginning of uh, next year or um, at the end of, uh, well, at the beginning of 2015, uh, depending on what publisher I go with. This is Brendan Constantine reading my poem, I, Meaning You. I, Meaning You, inspired by one night's worth of books, music, and television, including Emily Dickinson, Lord Byron, Chuck D., Allen Ginsberg, Sylvia Plath, Diane DePrima, Cesar Vallejo, The Nag Hammadi, Ellen Maybe, Flava Flav, Ice Cube, Dante Alighieri, Andrew Marvel, Gwendolyn Brooks, Mindy Nedefi, Tupac Shakur, A.E. Hausman, Robert Hayden, Marie Howe, 
T.S. Eliot, Virgil, and the Evening News, 7 p.m., September 17, 2012. The soul selects her own society. She walks in beauty like the night, but her brain's being washed by an actor, old woman of skulls. This lady hears no kin of mine, yet kin she is. What is that I cannot bear to say? Hay golpes en la vida tan fuertes, yo no sé. The soul is a woman. The soul is always a woman. There are people who wear their weather like perfume. Every day they don't never come correct. Though the heart be still as loving, with a little bit of gold and a pager, at my back I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near. I've stayed in the front yard all my life. If you're trying to size me up, allow me to do it for you. In my mind, I'm a blind man doing time, and down in lovely muck I've lain, happy till I woke again. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking, but I don't think there was a day like that for me. No, I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. The soul is a girl in love with her father. The father is a man who shot his daughter's computer. Birds are resuming for him. My name is Neil Elk, reading from New Jersey, the Garden State. The following poem, Anonymous Rooms with Automatons, is based on a painting by Pavel Zubak. In each and every room of my apartment house, anonymous, automatic lies, anatomically correct, half-human, half-metal and plastic, transfixed by TV screens. Dropping ashes that burn the skin, half alive, half asleep, dreaming of dinner on aluminum plates, double locked doors, grated windows, safety from that other world with no life other than in four walls. Thank you. I can be reached at Elmans, that is my name with an S, at Comcast. The Louisville Slugger Strikes the Broken Cup of Peace. And this is Peggy Dobreer. My website is www.peggy, D as in day, O, B as in boy, R, E, E, R. And this is after dual exhibits at the Crafton Folk Art Museum in Los Angeles. And it was dual exhibits. One was Baseball, the Great American Pastime Trivia. And the other was Aaron Toole's Cups of War and Peace, Production or Destruction. Hey, batter, batter, hey, batter. Until spring of 1893, there was no standard size for the baseball bat. You could make one any length, experiment with knobs and wood, 
many a bat was tried and split. Some cuts found too brittle to absorb the force of a leather ball. Maple and ash were determined best. When the bases are loaded, squadrons in place, the heat is on. Dug out like a foxhole. And now bats are regulated. 42 inches long, two and three quarters diameter at the widest point. War could be regulated like that. Simple rules like a game of cups on the sidewalk. Watch the cup that covers the glass eye. Don't take your baby blues off that cup. The cup with the gas mask. The cup with the bomb's blood, the agent orange, the Hello Kit cup, the cup that reads, war is a racket. The one where Mrs. Bush says, why do we have to hear about body bags anyway? They're so unpleasant. A cup of hand grenade, red clay of Vietnam, white bisque of dove, sick semper tyrannis, how force intoxicates the missile, the sword, the skull and crossbone, the rifle, the devil, the pawn, the bullet, the cup, the bullet, the cup, the bullet pierces the cup, the bullet shatters the cup. The bullet, the dust, the shattered cup. Well, that was it. That was the last poem in the Sikfrastia Gone Wild publication reading. Not just the last poem of this show, but it happens to be the last poem in the book, Ikfrastia Gone Wild. It was the Louisville Slugger Strikes the Broken Cup of Peace by Peggy Dobreer, Los Angeles poet. You can find her on the web at PeggyDobreer.com. A little earlier, we had a poem from Brendan Constantine. Brendan didn't leave his website, so allow me to tell you it's BrendanConstantine.com. He's worth checking out. So my name is Rick Lupert. You've been listening to a publication reading for Frastia Gone Wild, a new anthology of poems and Inspired by art. We heard about 60 poems today from about as many poets. A couple of poets had a couple of poems in the book. And they all are from Ekfrastia Gone Wild. Uh, We heard them in the order that they appear in the book. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, they were arranged in chronological order by the date the artwork that inspired the poem was created. Pretty cool, huh? You can get the book at poetrysuperhighway.com slash EGW. It's also available on Amazon and other places as well. Though speaking as an independent publisher, and really as the specific independent publisher of Ikfrastia Gone Wild, I can tell you, sure means a lot to us when you buy directly from our our websites and such. So that's poetrysuperhighway.com slash EGW. Not only can you order the book from that website, but you can see the entire table of contents. You can 
see all the uh, the complete list of people who were included in the book, and as also as I mentioned earlier on that table of contents page, if you click on the poems that have blue titles, it'll call up an image of the artwork that inspired that poem, which I think is a very cool way to go through a craft gone wild, not only reading the poems that were inspired by various artworks, but reading those poems while looking at the actual artwork. It wasn't possible with every single poem. Some some poems are inspired by films. I couldn't put an entire film up as a single image, etc. But for the most part, there's something to look at. It's pretty cool. Also there on the website, poetrysuperhighway.com slash EGW, you'll find lesson plans. If you're a teacher, uh, you might be interested in teaching an acrastic poetry lesson plan. There's a whole list of lesson plans there, a couple of which were written specifically for the book, Acrastia Gone Wild, by poets in the book, including Peggy Dubrow, who we just heard from. Uh, And they revolve around the poems in the book. Helps to satisfy that new core Common Core Education Standard adopted by many schools throughout the United States for ninth and 10th graders who are essentially required in this standard to write an acrastic poem. It specifically says they have to compare two works of art using the poem as the comparison vehicle. That's not verbatim what it says, but that's the general idea. So ninth and 10th grade teachers, you should have copies of Acrasty Gone Wild in your classroom. Talk to me about how to get those. Send me an email at rick at poetrysuperhighway.com. I'd be happy to let you know, uh, offering uh, significant discounts to teachers who are ordering the book for their classroom. I'd like to thank all the poets who are in the book, uh, period, because they all deserve thanks for sending me uh, such a wonderful assortment of poems to put into this book. And specifically, I'd like to thank all of the poets who were able to send a recording of their poem or to call in on the special recording hotline in order to uh, make it so we could hear their poem today. Not every poet is represented uh, on the show today. Not everyone, for one reason or another, was able to to uh, send a recording of their poem. But that's okay. The book is well represented by the by the sixty some odd poets who called in and read their poems or sent in recordings. Uh, I'd also like to once again thank the good people at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt who gave me permission to use Wislawasis and Borska's poem Vermeer early in the book. So proud to have a Nobel Prize winning poet in Ekfrastia gone wild. This has been a special edition of Poetry Superhighway Live. This is a show that we do every single month. Typically, it's an open reading where you can call in and read a poem. Check out the schedule. Go to PoetrySuperHighway.com. Click on PSH Live at the top uh, to find out the next date that we'll be doing an open reading. Typically, every month we have poets from all over the world calling in. Why not you? It's a great thing to share a poem. It's an easy way to do it. You don't have to wear clothes. You could just be doing this from the comfort of your own home. So check out the schedule on the Poetry Superhighway website and find out when our next show is. You can call in and read your poem as well. If you want to keep up to date with what we're doing with Ain't Got No Press, go to the Ain't Got No Press website, which is poetrysuperhighway.com slash A-G-N-P. If you think 
Ekfrastia Gone Wild is pretty cool, and you want to find out how you can get your poem in the next Ain't Got No Press anthology. Of course, there's never a guarantee of that. Submission process, of course, if you'd like to submit your poem for consideration in the next Ain't Got No Press anthology, uh, get on the email list. You can do that right on the, the sidebar on the right-hand side of the website, poetrysuperhighway.com slash A-G-N-P. And we'll keep you up to date as we conceive of new anthologies to put out for you to potentially submit to. Get on the Poetry Superhighway list at poetrysuperhighway.com slash PSH. We'll let you know about future PSH live shows, open readings, etc. My name is Rick Lupert. Thanks so much for tuning in to this special Poetry Superhighway live broadcast celebrating the publication of Ekfrastia Gone Wild. Check us out on the web at poetrysuperhighway.com slash EGW. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.